excited to talk to you today, Lindsay. Lindsay Burke, Director of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we've known each other for a while, and I think you write such smart stuff, especially recently. You know, everyone, I just feel like there's this flood in education reform of writing. I hardly can keep up with it, but I pay close attention to what you write because well, I thank think you very it's much. very smart. And so, um, and you know, we're all talking all the time about what the heck is going on in education and no one really knows much, I don't think. It's all pretty imaginary, but yeah. what I want to talk to you about that I've been thinking about a lot lately is higher education. I just read something today, a survey that was done maybe by Gallup, don't quote me, but 33% um, of high school seniors say that if their school is going to go on all online, they'll put it off for a year, like wow. a third. Wow. And wow. FAFSAs are way down. And what I know in Missouri, like they're slashing higher ed budget and what, you know, I hate to ask you to prognosticate, but what do you think is going to happen? I mean, we were already having a hard time in higher ed and the product hasn't been improving and so now the product is going to be greatly diminished. And right. so what do you think, if you were an administrator at a university, what would you do? Yeah, so, so this is the issue, right? I mean, colleges have needed this sort of fiscal course correction for decades now, for decades and decades. And so I, I think what we're witnessing, you know, in addition to everything students are thinking about, everything that parents and faculty are thinking about, what we're seeing our colleges sort of starting to look to Washington for a bailout because of the pandemic, ostensibly, but really we're talking about trying to leverage that bailout to rectify years of budgetary mismanagement, and that, that's totally inappropriate. But this is what we're seeing now. They already got $14 billion from the CARES Act. That was the phase three uh, bill that Congress signed into law in response to the virus. So $14 billion already on top of what they normally receive. So we're talking now about additional bailout money that colleges are asking for. But really, it comes down, yes, the coronavirus has certainly exacerbated all of these issues. But to my mind, it really comes down to these decades and decades of fiscal and budgetary mismanagement or poor decision-making or however you want to frame it that has created this crisis. Not the least of which is the government saying, you know, fill out 10 or 15 lines in this online form and we'll, we'll loan you any amount of money you want to have, basically, you know what I mean? Have you ever seen the, <laughs> if you've ever seen the, um, the PLUS loan program, you know, yeah. you can borrow as much as you want and basically, uh, you don't do a credit check. I mean, it's just like incredibly easy to get that money. And so people have done that. So now this idea of like, let's either forgive student loans fully or $10,000 or this type of idea, mm -hmm. that's not going to help anything. Yeah, that's right. And, and the PLUS loan program, I think most higher ed scholars would identify it as being probably the most egregious driver of increases in college costs. And it, it's just poor public policy for a number of reasons. You know, the, the PLUS loan program, if listeners aren't familiar with it, it's divided into two parts. So you have the Parent PLUS program, which allows parents to borrow for the cost of their uh, child's undergraduate college, and then the Grad PLUS program, which allows grad students to borrow for grad school. And this has encouraged, I would argue, Bill Bennett argued back in 1987, colleges to increase their cost because they are confident that students can go back to the federal government and access this virtually open-ended federal spigot of student aid. And when Bennett first talked about it in 1987, it was, I never remember if it was the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, 
but he published that article called Are Greedy Colleges? And that's where basically the Bennett hypothesis comes from, right? If you provide open-ended federal subsidies, you're going to encourage universities to raise tuition. Well, I would argue now it's the Bennett truism, right? We've seen that that has certainly been the case. Universities have increased spending at uh, levels far exceeding the rate of inflation. They've increased at four times the level of increases in healthcare costs, which are often thought about as being the most expensive. And so the PLUS loan, I think, is one of those big drivers that encourages family-level debt, which is bad public policy. And if you believe what the New York Federal Reserve Bank put out a couple of years ago now, I think it was 2015, but they found this, they uh, produced a study that said for every additional dollar in subsidized federal loans, like the PLUS loan, colleges increase tuition 60 cents. So they're capturing all of that money. It's enabling them to raise tuition. It's not doing anything to put downward pressure on prices and just encouraging more family level debt. And so then their product, I think they, they, I'm just, you know, taking a stab at this, but I think they improve their product by building beautiful buildings and creating beautiful campuses. And, you know, the amenities arms race, we talked about that a lot. Missouri, right. Missouri is sort of on the map because at the University of Missouri, they, they built this thing called the Tiger Grotto, which is like this <laughs> insane sports complex with the Lazy River. And, um, you know, I'm sorry if you're going online this fall, none of that matters, right? That's if right. your product is based on how pretty the campus is and get the kids and their parents to come take a tour and see how nice the dorms are and not investing it in faculty. I mean, they're investing in staff, but not that much in right. faculty. What happens in fall 2020? I'm not going to pay full tuition to a Cal State school to take sit at my parents' house and take classes online. And that's some right, schools are raising their tuition. Yeah, which is just not a strategy that's going to be effective. If you saw the, there was an interview floating around last week that was pretty widely uh, publicized, but it was with Scott Galloway, who's a professor at NYU. And he talks about that exact issue that you bring up, Susan, that, you know, you are, if you are a student paying or a parent paying $50,000 a year to go to college and you are paying in part for those facilities, right? The Tiger Grotto and the climbing walls and the lazy rivers, are you willing to pay 50 grand a year moving forward if that experience is basically separated from you, right? If you are living at home and you only have access to the academic component of higher ed, and I am not sure, uh, and I think it's highly unlikely that people will be willing to pay that level of tuition. So the question is, what do colleges do if they want to survive, right? This is, is not even about, you know, how do they do even better moving forward? <laughs> at this point, it is about survival. And so if colleges want to survive, they have to look inward. And you mentioned staff a second ago. This is what they need to identify. Trustees need to look at those budgets. Boards of Regents need to look at those college budgets. And they should be aware that we have seen significant growth in non-teaching faculty accumulate over the past few decades. This is something the National Association of Scholars pointed out in a recent report that non-instructional staff and administrative positions at universities now account for more than half of university payroll costs on average across the country. And it's something that Jay Green at Arkansas has been tracking for decades, that administrative blow. Um, you know, he, he talks about it as diseconomies of scale. So um, he, he had tracked, I think from 93 to 07, that real per pupil spending on administration had increased 61% 
and universities, and that that was driven by a 40% increase in the number of administrators per 100 students. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge issue that they're going to have to deal with if they want to survive. So that interview that you mentioned last week, I believe, is where I read this, that this idea of the four-year on-campus experience is going to become, to, going to evolve into an experience for the wealthy wealthiest kids, right. right? Everyone else, especially if you see a college degree as a signal or as credentialing, like, you know, you have to have it. Sometimes I don't care what it's even in, but right. you've got to have one. So if you see it as a signaling or credentialing, do you, you know, the idea of spending 50 or 60,000 a year for four years, so you get this experience of, you know, hanging out with kids your age and having fun and not too much draw on your time, really going to class will uh, be something that I, I think just a whole lot of people are going to say it's not worth the price. Yeah. And, and that's right. I mean, Galloway talks about in that interview that colleges have basically created the most elaborate and expensive job interview process that you could possibly conceive of, right? <laughs> so it's like you're paying 50 grand a year and you're spending four years or five or six, which has now become the norm for most students uh, on campus at universities to get this paper credential. Uh, and that is effectively what it's all about, right? It, it is that paper credential. We talk about the sheepskin effect in higher education and and just to quickly walk through that, if, if the listeners aren't familiar with the sheepskin effect, it, it's really interesting because if you, so the idea is, let's say that you as a student complete three quarters of your bachelor's degree. So you go, you know, almost, you almost, almost complete, but you're a couple of classes, let's say you're even one credit short. You get, you would imagine all of the education, right? So you're learning all of the content, you're one credit short. But for whatever reason, you just you don't walk across the stage, you don't get that paper credential. Presumably, you have the knowledge, but since you don't have that paper credential, it's going to be a huge ding on you in the job market. And so that's the sort of sheepskin effect that the people talk about, is that it really is a signaling device. And what it signals is a big question, right? Is it signaling that you've really mastered content and that you're ready to engage in the work world? Or does it signal that, you know, you kind of played the game and you played the game, your stick-to-itiveness, your grit, whatever the, you know, word of the day is. So, you know, there, there's a lot sort of pent up there that I, I think we might see, um, Rick Hess used the word clarify today by the coronavirus. Maybe we'll see some of this clarified. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly exposing weak points. It's exposed yeah. so many weak points in K-12 in a state like Missouri, we're mostly rural, rural districts were caught so flat-footed. I mean, yeah. some um, universities, well, University of Washington, tracking what's happening in big districts, but what's happening in small districts, that is really, I'm seeing some, well, they're, they're not able to do anything. They, they yeah. pass out some homework packets, kids don't have to do them, and they pass out food. And maybe yeah. they, and their parent, and the teachers put some things online. I know of one rural district in Virginia where teachers are forbidden from working more than 30 minutes a week, which is unbelievable <laughs> to me. But I mean, so there's some of that going on. It's really exposing the weak points, but I think it's really, it's going to expose really the weak points in higher ed because of exactly what you said, which is that it was already, I mean, there are already plenty of schools that were barely making it. And I think they're going to close. And That's I think right. people will be surprised when they find out yeah. their alma mater closed. We went to a college campus, my husband and I, like a week or so ago, where he went in Charleston, Illinois, Eastern Illinois University. It's not making it. 
I don't yeah. think it'll come out of this alive. And we have a lot of small ones in Missouri too. And I think that that's just going to be a sad uh, collateral effect of this pandemic is like, it's like a family that was overextended on credit cards. You know what that's I mean? Right. Like, it's a terrible thing, but you can kind of keep it going if you're growing. But for higher ed, it was already starting to decline and they weren't spending their money wisely. And now they're going to get caught with um, being well in Missouri, one of the places where you can balance the budget by taking it yeah. from higher ed and sending it to the Department of Health. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you're going to have to find the money with so yeah. many people in unemployment. I mean, it's, it's interesting because for so long, folks have said, well, you know, over the next decade, right? I mean, people have been writing this for more than a decade, but over the next decade, we're going to see some non-trivial number of universities, most likely the middle tier universities shut down. Um, and we haven't seen that come to be yet in part because of the ubiquity of federal aid and uh, some of these bailouts. And you know, even if higher ed does need a course correction, which it does, no one would have wanted it to happen this way <laughs> through a pandemic. So, but it, I mean, there's at this point, I mean, it, it's the reality the pandemic has impacted nearly every source of revenue that universities rely on. It's impacted their endowments because of the stock market. It has impacted and will impact tuition revenue. If students aren't willing to pay for that Birkin bag to go back to Scott Galloway, the like Birkin bag version of higher ed where they're going on campus, you know, that's going to impact tuition revenue. It's going to impact charitable contributions if folks who can give or even alumni are seeing that bottom line impacted because of the stock market, it's going to impact charitable contributions. It's going to impact state appropriations, right? We've got governments across the country telling private businesses that they have to shut down, well, that's necessarily going to impact state tax revenue, which will have a downstream effect on those appropriations. So it really has, it's hit every possible aspect. We see students now instigating class action lawsuits to get partial refunds back on their tuition. So that's hanging out there. I guess on the maybe optimistic side is that the, the optimistic is not even the right word, but when we see recessions happen, we tend to see more students enroll in college. So from the university side, that might be a bit of a silver lining in all of this is that they could see more folks go to college, pursue those um, higher degrees down the road, master's degrees, et cetera. And those uh, people who had figured it out prior to this, and I'm thinking um, specifically of Mitch Daniels and Purdue Global, yes. who sort of was way ahead of this, and they haven't raised their tuition, and they have a, the capacity for students to be online and on campus and get this shared experience if they want on campus, and it's a very high-quality program, they're going to be fine. Yeah. It's the schools that resisted this, you know what I mean? That, That's right. Um, you know, a lot of instructors aren't prepared to teach online. Well, we've seen across K-12, a whole lot of teachers are yeah. like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I say it's yeah. a, I was talking to Andy Smerick last week and um, on a podcast, and I was like, it's like telling every teacher you have to teach in Spanish. Well, there's some teachers who are going to know Spanish, right? But then there's going to be so many teachers that don't know any Spanish, and they're going to be like, I can't do it. I'm not prepared for this. That's right. Um, so I think that uh, we're going to see that in higher ed too, professors that just didn't, that resisted this online version. Now they're going to have to change their whole model. I just, yeah. what do you, so what, what's your prediction for, for um, the 21, 22 
school year for higher ed? What do you think yeah. is going to happen in this next so, 12 months? I think you, you hit the nail on the head, right? There are some universities that they've been preparing their whole lives for this moment, right? So the Purdue Globals of the world, the Southern New Hampshire universities, the Western Governors universities, you know, those types of institutions, this is, I think, something that they can certainly weather. It's their moment to do that. And then we're going to see those higher tier institutions. They will always be with us, right? Harvard and Yale and MIT, they're going to be fine. So the question is what happens to those middle tier institutions? And it is a moment for them where they really have to figure out how they can rise to the occasion. And I think it's, it's going to require them thinking about disentangling the residential experience from the academic experience. And if they want to survive, getting back to their core mission, which is the academic experience. And so how many of these middle tier institutions are willing and able to make that shift and to really refocus? I think that's the the $64,000 question. Unfortunately, I do think um, we will see a number of universities close down as a result of this. Um, and I think at the same time, we will see a number of student, the number of students enrolling have a slight increase. Um, and I think partly that's going to be a function of the access becoming a little bit easier. If universities can shift more of their academics online and that enables the um, single mother or the mid-career switcher or the person who works full-time who also wants to earn a, an advanced degree, if this enables them to do that, we might actually see an uptick. But I, I think that what we're going to see is that residential component change dramatically. Um, this could be, and look, this is something colleges have needed to do for a long time. ACTA, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, talks about this, that there should be no empty classrooms or no empty buildings, right? If you walk through a university campus on a Friday at two o'clock, the buildings are empty, right? So there should be no under-enrolled sections of universities. The question is, how do they do that with the physical plant? We, you know, if students are still going to be social distancing in the fall, you know, preparing now to shift a lot of that online, shifting a lot of what the freshman year would have looked like to summer online courses is something that universities are going to have to think about doing. I read today some are thinking about truncating their fall semester so that they close by Thanksgiving to avoid, I guess, if they're worried if there's a second round of the virus that hits in the winter. Yeah, to avoid that. So that was kind of strange planning myself. I thought that was weird. Yeah. Like start early, skip fall break and end at Thanksgiving. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure they have a reason, but I'm not, it's not clear to me. Yeah. Um, I know Arizona State has a program where for your first year, you can take classes, you can take a a list of classes you don't pay unless you pass and then right. if you pass and then you pay and you say yeah college is right for me you don't have those students who think well i got out of high school i don't know what else i'm going to do i guess i'll go to um, arizona state and yeah. live on campus you don't have to do that your first year so i think we may see some of that and then part of that's going to be like um you know a cultural shift with 17 18 and 19 year olds about whether yeah. like how much they value that on-campus experience and study abroad and those kinds yeah, of things, that's you know, right. it might look a little bit different from now on. And how willing is the 65-year-old professor to go back to in-person teaching? That's the other sort of unknown at this point is how they deal with the personnel side, the faculty, the teaching faculty side of this. 
Um, so, that, you know, that's going to be something else that universities have to grapple with. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, my prediction is we will see a lot more of this <laughs> move online in the fall. Um, I also predict that we will see some universities uh, close down for good. I mean, very, very sadly, we're, we're seeing this in the K-12 space right now, right? We're seeing lots of Catholic schools, private Catholic schools closed down right now. And that is just, you know, I don't know if it's the maybe canary in the coal mine for the university system as well, but that's something else we could see. So I think that's that's the prediction. I think we do, we, we see a bit of an uptick in enrollment as a function of online learning. I think we see a big shift to online and I do think we see some of the older middle tier brick and mortar legacy institutions go by the wayside. Yeah, and that, that's another option, consolidate campuses, right? If you're a big state system, consolidate some of those campuses, share faculty resources, that kind of thing. One thing that you haven't mentioned in your predictions, and we haven't really talked about because it's a terrible idea, is uh, student loan forgiveness. Like this idea yeah. that regardless of what type of degree you got, how much you borrowed, what your income is today, um, whether you're paying your student loan payments or not, no matter any of that, we just simply forgive everyone's student loans. Right. Um, how does that help higher ed? And why is that such a terrible idea? Yeah, well, look, it, it certainly helps higher ed because it is basically a big old blank check <laughs> to higher education, right? But, but it's a blank check that is written on the backs of the two thirds of Americans who don't have bachelor's degrees. And this is why student loan forgiveness is so inequitable. I mean, today, I, you know, I think sometimes people don't realize that the proportion of Americans with bachelor's degrees is still modest, right? It's about a third of Americans who have them. I don't think but, people realize that two thirds of Americans don't have a college degree. That's right, yep, two thirds don't have a bachelor's degree. And so when we think about, or when we hear proposals from Washington to just forgive student loans, that means that the people who either, for whatever reason, couldn't go to college or people who just didn't want to go that route, who thought that they would do better uh, going, I don't know, an apprentice route or just straight into the workforce, or maybe people who decided to serve their country for a few years and put their lives on the lines so that they could uh, get that GI benefit when they come, came back. It is those two-thirds of individuals who will have to repay the loans of the people who took out a contract, signed on the dotted line, and said, I'm going to repay this student loan. So it's a really inequitable way to think about higher ed financing to have the two-thirds who didn't pursue a bachelor's degree and don't have a bachelor's degree paying off <laughs> the loans of the people who will make more than them down the road. Yeah. They don't go away. Like That's student right. loan forgiveness, I mean banks loaned that money, somebody has to get paid back. Well, and, and that's, that's what the other nefarious part of, of loan forgiveness is that today we're at the point where the federal government, federal taxpayers, originate and service 90% of all student loans. So when there's forgiveness, it necessarily means that the public at large is paying for those student loans. And of course, you know, it gets back to that original question. What does that mean for universities? It means they continue to raise tuition profligately because they know there's loan forgiveness. And the, the CARES Act that passed, I guess, a month and a half ago now, I think that that struck the right tone on the loan piece because what they said then was that you don't, we're going to pause repayments on your student loans for six months and interest won't accrue. I think that's fair, right? If the coronavirus has put you out of a job, if it has shut down your business, whatever it might be, 
none of your principal goes away. Your loan's still there, but you don't have to make payments on it for six months. I think that was the right tone that they struck. But that blanket is the, you know, the, the house right now is proposing a blanket $10,000 per America, per person uh, loan forgiveness proposal is preposterous. And where do you get that number? And where do you get the date? I mean, like, right. it's always like, what if I have two payments left? And we say, oh, it's September 1st, 2020. That's right. Everyone who has a student loan is like, you can't do that. And then I mean, it's just, there's so many reasons that that's a terrible idea. And it's something yeah. that just kind of doesn't go away. And I know some younger people with student loans who are thinking they're maybe going to go away. I'm like, no, right. I don't think they actually are going to go away. That's, and right. that's just a terrible idea. That's just, you know, but it keeps coming just, back. I mean, we won't, but we could talk about this all day because there are so many terrible incentives that that creates, right? When you take out a loan that you know that you have to repay, it influences your decision, right? It influences your decision about going to college at all. It influences perhaps your decision about what course of study you might pursue, um, because that presumably will impact your career down the road and the amount of money you'll make and your ability to repay. If you take that incentive off the table, more or less, through loan forgiveness, it just it has all of these messy components to it and unintended consequences down the road beyond just the massive impact on taxpayers and the fact that we are continuing to saddle future generations with a tremendous amount of debt. Yeah, so that's a bad idea, and hopefully we won't see that one happen. But I yeah. think you're right on the rest of it. I think that's exactly what we're going to see. And I just think it's going to be interesting to watch things unfold. I have yeah. been um, more of a observing from the side than jumping in, because I feel like if anytime I say something that I think I know is true about education and the COVID-19, like a week later, it's not really true anymore. <laughs> so I, uh, I kind of want to see this, like uh, my colleague, Mike McShane said, we'll have enough to research pre-pandemic, post-pandemic and education right. policy for the rest of our careers. Um, There's going to be so much. And I know that I saw somewhere they're setting up a, a research center specifically aimed at pandemic related education huh. research. There's wow. so much both K-12 and higher so ed, much. but yeah, that's right. I just appreciate having a chance to pick your brain on the higher ed piece because that is, to me, that's like this, um, maybe canary in the coal mine, maybe that yeah. is. I just feel like when people start to find out that their alma mater closed, I think they're going to realize the far-reaching impact of this and the need to sort of retool and yeah. be ready for things like this going forward. It's 2020. It's not the late 1900s anymore. It's right. a fifth of the way into this one. So right. it's time to kind of rethink what college was when I went there. But um, anyway, great to talk to you as always. Likewise. I really appreciate yes. it. And Thank keep writing smart me. stuff for me to read. <laughs> and and uh, reading. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. So have a great day. Great. Thanks. Y'all too. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.